ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. This is the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2. If you're having difficulty finding it, just ask somebody next to you. They'll help you. If you want to use a screen up top as a cheat sheet, you're more than welcome to. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Colossians chapter 2. What I would like to do is read through this passage and then we'll go back and we'll start at the beginning of it and take a look. Let's start in verse 8. We're going to read through 15. Here we go. We ready? Hold on. Let's listen. The rustling of pages. That's how you know, right? That's good. Or if you have it on your phone. We'll let that pass too. Chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The book of Colossians was written about AD 61. What's amazing about this is it's so full of hope. It's bursting with joy. And while Paul's writing it, he's in chains. He's in shackles. I don't know if you've ever been to prison before. If you have, I love you still. It's okay. Doesn't make you a bad person. Makes you somebody who did something bad. It's okay. But here's one thing we know is usually you don't find joy in prison. Paul was very different. And what made him very different about that was the presence of Christ in his life. He actually had something to write about. And so he's outpouring encouragement to people. And in this letter here, he wants to let them know something very strict about the age in which he's in. Now we're talking first century AD, but I don't think that this framework has changed any for where we're at now. Let me show you why. Verse 8 is a warning. And I think it's important that we mark it as such. And watch what he does here. See to it that no one takes you captive. That no one gains control of your person and leads you away with your hands behind your head. You say, well, that would never happen. I would say that it already has. And we need to be aware. Notice how it, got, how, how it comes about. Number one, philosophy. Number two, empty deception. Now understand this. Is there anything wrong with studying philosophy? Not a thing. In fact, philosophy means 
to have a love for wisdom or a love for knowledge. But I would also tell you Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you don't start with God at the beginning of your knowing, you will come out with a faulty conclusion. All that is known or can be known can only be known through him. That must be prefaced because only he is the creator. We are not. So there is a very real risk here of philosophy taking people away the way that you think. Notice also that it says empty deception. So some of your translations might say vain deception. It's the idea of coming across a tree that's hollow. It has nothing inside. It looks full on the outside. looks strong on the outside. But when you look inside of it, it's been burrowed out. There's nothing there. Notice that it's in two phases. Number one, according to the tradition of men. How people think. How this world thinks. How this world wants you to think. Let me give you some good quotes of what we're seeing today just in one vein of deception. Who here has heard of Friedrich Nietzsche? Heard of Nietzsche. He's the one that claimed that God was dead. And I thought it was great because 50 years after his death, they turned his house into a Bible printing press. God has a sense of humor. In Friedrich Nietzsche's time, he was constantly promoting the idea of something called Ubermensch. Anybody know what that translates as? Superman, the overman. The idea that all you need to do is have the right ingredients, the right environment, the right circumstances, and human beings can be superior above and beyond what God created them to be. You don't need a creator. You just need to try hard enough and be good enough, and you will be God. Now, what's strange is, is that has not changed. I have two people that have been in our news recently. You've probably heard of this first man, Yuval Noah Harari. If you're not familiar with him, he taught studies for the longest time at the University of Jerusalem, but has since come on as the little toady of the World Economic Forum. I don't care if you think what I said about that. That's fine. He's squirrely, and he's dangerous. Here's his quote. Having raised humanity above the beastly level of survival struggle, we will now aim to upgrade humans into gods. And how is this coming about? By something called transhumanism. If you can just get enough of the mechanical parts, enough of the technology, enough of the chemical balances, if we can form it all together, we can actually exceed above and beyond. Now, some of you probably saw this news story from two weeks ago. This is by a guy named Ray Kurtzwill. He used to be an engineer at Google. And he said, by the year 2030, we're going to achieve for humans immortality. We will no longer die. In fact, he went on to state, and by 2045, we will achieve something called singularity. Has anybody ever heard of singularity? Singularity, the human effective intelligence that is multiplied by one billion fold by merging with artificial intelligence. In, order, in other words, for us to be sustained beyond human capacity, because obviously humans are not going to make it, obviously we're going to fail, Obviously, our greatest problem 
is ourselves, and that is very much true. We have to exceed above and beyond. And so in order to do that, we will just become God rather than turn to God. That's a problem. This is philosophy and vain deception. And this is how the world is promoting thinking. Now, where does this come from? It comes from the second labeling there that you might see. According to the elementary principles of the world. Does everybody see that phrase, elementary principles? The idea of a principality is actually used of demonic forces. It's the idea that Satan's minions are running around this world doing everything that they can to deceive. And so understand, this isn't just something that sits at a natural level, but it's something that has its origins at a supernatural level. It's the idea of Satan always wanting to be God. It's his greatest desire being pumped into the ideology of human beings so that they will go for the same things that Satan desires to go for. Now here's what's incredible about this is notice that there is a massive dividing line in this verse let me read it for you again see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than everybody knows what that means right that's a big old but but you're facing one way and you shift the entire scene the other way but rather according to who christ Notice that these two areas are mutually exclusive. Notice that only in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look back at verse 3 of this same chapter. Look what it says. In whom, that's Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this is the thrust of human society. We just need to know more. We just need to grow in a certain way. And you find out that all these things are already setting in a person. That is Jesus. Now here's what I love about what Paul does in this text. He warns of the potential problem. So we need to be aware of what's happening. But then he tells us who the difference maker is. And then from verses 9 through 15, and he's already done this through the rest of the book, but we don't have time today to go through all the book, otherwise we would. (laughs) But he goes through these verses in order to expound upon why Jesus Christ is superior. If we leave with anything today, it needs to be a knowledge of the superiority of who Jesus Christ is. Because our culture is trying to forget him. Our historians are trying to wipe him out. And we are being fed a new ideology that wants to try to ascend us above the truthfulness and the factuality of his person. God is not threatened. God is not intimidated. His word is not diminished. And his son never stops being who he is. The question is, do we know who he is so that we're thinking correctly about him? Let me parse this down into layman's terms. If the world is feeding you a load of bull, it would be good to know where real food is coming from because Christ is separate from the ways of man and demonic forces and they are always opposed with one another. Here we go. Verse 9. For in him, 
What's that, Ephesians people? It's a location in Christ. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. See, this is the ace that God pulled out of his front shirt pocket and he laid down on the table in eternity. And he said, here's what I'm going to do to handle this deficiency that everybody can readily recognize in one another. Do you readily recognize the deficiency in one another? I mean, today is a Resurrection Sunday situation. You're probably here with family, yes? Okay? Some of you came to church. Some of you were drugged to church. Some of you have been drugged so that you would come to church. (laughs) Just kidding. That's what the turkey's for, right? But you're here. And we readily recognize the insufficiencies in one another. That's okay. God never expected us to be perfect. But what he did do was manifest himself in a likeness like yours and like mine so that we could have on full display what perfection looks like. In fact, he devoted four chapters in his word just to set aside the idea of, I just want you to know what my son is like. How he dealt with people. How he handled oppositions. How he worked through anger. How he expressed grief. And how he looked at death in the face and said, nope. Only Jesus could do that. So what we see is, is that in Christ, all the fullness of deity, everything that God is, has been poured into a body like this. I imagine much leaner than this, but like this. And in doing so, has done something incredible called incarnation. The idea that God would actually come to this earth and live as you and I do so that he could understand you and I on our level, having suffered through some of the same exact situations. Sometimes we think of God as being distant and far off and at arm's length. Sometimes people have pictured him as something, a toy that you just wind up and hop away into the annals of eternity, never to be seen again. I'm just going to let the world do what it does. That's not what God has said. God has said, I want to know all about what's going on with you, and so I will become like you. Not just so I can know you, but so that you have the chance to know me. There is not a loftier call in life than to know God. That is the greatest problem that we're having. And a lot of our solutions that have come forward as answers of the day are a direct result of our inadequacy with God, our deficiency with God. Our earth is suffering from spiritual scurvy. And in doing so, it's because we've forgotten the person of Jesus Christ. We'll have an altar call in a minute. It's okay. But God has decided to take himself, a person of truth, and embody it in a person. A person who would live in such a way that did nothing wrong. A person that would live in such a way that was so full of compassion that it's boggling to the mind. If you have kids, you know. And if you know, you know. 
The person of Jesus Christ is truth. Notice what else it says in verse 10. And in Him, this glorious person Jesus, this truth, this God in the flesh, look what it says. You have been made, what's the word? Complete. Let me show you something interesting grammatically. If you look at verse 9, for in Him all the fullness of deity. You see that? Imagine God pulling all of Himself to the brim inside of a person, and that would be Jesus in the flesh. Well, notice it's the exact same word that is used in verb form here. And in Him you have been made complete. In other words, if you are in Christ... He has taken of which he has been filled with, and he's turned around, and he's filled you. Sometimes you wonder why you are the way that you are. I know you do. I do. Probably at a much more confusing level. But we always end up in a situation of inadequacy. We always end up in a situation where we think we're coming up short, that people in the room know more than what we do about a situation. We're inferior. I don't know about you, but my feet are still wet because I'm constantly putting them in my mouth. I'm sure you don't have that problem. But I do. And what I recognize is, I'm so full of myself that Christ has no room to fill me. That's not what God's intent is. God's intent was to send His Son to fill me up and to fill you up. Don't think that that's true. Go through an inventory of what your past two weeks of decisions have been like. And where has unsatisfaction been found of which you made proactive plans to bring about a meeting of that need. Here's what I know. It was temporary, and you're going to want it again. This constitutes everything with the drug problem we have. This constitutes everything with the alcohol problem that we have. It's because we are scraping for a means of personal first aid to try to deal with real-world problems and we're trying to get filled up, and we cannot be filled. Now back up one second. God is the designer of your body. And I'm not worried about what anybody thinks about that. It's true. Number two, if he poured his fullness into Christ so that Christ could pull his full, pour his fullness into you, what does that tell you that the satisfaction is going to come from? No wonder we're striking out. Tend to look everywhere but Jesus. You ever had a situation where you need some information? And it doesn't matter if you're male or female. You ask your spouse, and they're able to answer it completely. But we will do our darndest to find another answer somewhere else. Don't act like you don't. Two weeks later, well, my friend said this. And she's thinking, I told you that two weeks ago. 
We look everywhere else for fullness. And God's answer is only Christ can fill because I've filled Christ to fill you. So in Him, you've been made complete. You know what complete means? Lacking in nothing. Not fragmented. Not deficient. Not ill-equipped. In fact, some translations might dare to say perfected. Does that mean that you don't ever sin? No, that's not what it talks about. But what it means is any hint of inferiority or inadequacy has been swallowed up because it's no longer about me and my identity. It's about who Jesus is out before me all the time. He is the difference maker. Notice he is also, he is the head over all rule and authority. Everybody see the words rule and authority? We're going to see them again. Demonic words. The rankings of demon in invisible spheres that we don't see. Don't turn on your news channel and tell me that Satan's not working. Don't look at your news feed. We see it. And we see it working. Guess what? Jesus is over all that. Not only is he the fullness of God in human flesh, not only does he fill us up as the only solution we need as answers to our problems and issues, but we also find out that in the unseen that we don't know anything about. He is head over all. He is already over all of those things. Notice that he moves on here. Kind of strange imagery, but let's look at it. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Every single person starts out on a playing field that is equal. It's level. And what it is, is it's full of one thing. One thing that we all have in common that's amazing. Eye color different, hair color different, body structure different, fine. We all have sin in common. We all sin well. We all sin often. And we all specialize in particular sins of which meet Whatever our heart desires, we're really good at sinning. We can do it in spades. Some of us would even run over our own grandmothers to get whatever we want. Don't act like we're not evil. In fact, that's one of the basic first things we have to come to to recognize the issue. I'm so exceedingly evil, I can't even handle myself. Don't feel bad about that. What? It's true. And the sooner we come to grips with the problem, the sooner we're prepared for the answer. So since we have this sinful flesh, there has to be something done that breaks this up. In fact, in this verse, if you look at it again, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh. This is an incredibly unique word. It's the only time that it ever occurs in the New Testament. It's almost like Paul decided to take some words and stick them together and coin a word so that we would understand. And the idea is, I know this is ancient thinking, okay? Does everybody remember the ice tray? One of the greatest inventions ever made, okay? Light bulb, printing press, ice tray, absolutely. For those of you youngins that don't know, 
We used to have a plastic tray that had holes in it and little pockets. And we would run it under the faucet water and we would very carefully, and for some reason, all of a sudden, we had a case of the trimmers always because we're spilling it all over the floor. And our goal was trying to get it into the freezer and shut the door and you give it enough time and that water would freeze and become ice. But if you didn't fill every little pocket exactly, you had an overflow that connected them all together. And so you would get out that tray and you would go and break them all up. And then you'd drop it in the bucket and you'd start again. I know some of you kids are like, how did everybody live back then? What is going on? Blast of the past. Get in your DeLorean and check it out, right? That's what he's got going on here. We, for, we were so sinfully meshed into this mold. And we can't get ourselves out of it. Ice is pretty helpless when it's sitting in the freezer. And so Jesus comes in and takes a hold of us and goes, and breaks us out of this mold so that we no longer have to be in this perpetually sinful situation. With the idea of circumcision, I know it's weird. I didn't write it. God did. Trust Him. But it's the cutting away of an outward obstruction to remove it. And that's exactly what's used here. Take it, break it, get it out of the way. It's no longer needed. It says here, by the circumcision of Christ, Jesus does the work. Jesus takes the sin nature and with an exact knife cuts it away. Now notice the next verse, 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. This is not water baptism. This is spirit baptism. When somebody comes in contact with the gospel, with the saving news of Jesus Christ. Let me give it to you real quick in 10 words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. That is the gospel. What the, the crux of the issue comes down to is whether or not you believe that that's true. Are you confidently convicted that Jesus has died for your sins in your place and he's raised from the dead? Enough people showed up to express their understanding in that. But do we believe it? In that situation... Jesus comes in and he does all of the work necessary. He takes care of the issue. And when that happens, if you've ever seen a water baptism situation, you've usually seen it as an idea where you'll be in the water, somebody will grab a hold of the hand there and I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they will dip you back into the water down underneath it to cover you and bring you back up. There's a lot of things going on there. Number one, there's nothing done to save you more. That is a work that is of obedience. It has nothing to do with gaining God's favor, period. It's about something that we do as a response to what he's already done. So in doing that, it identifies with the death, burial, and we don't want to bury him too long, resurrection of Christ. I had one kid one time, I started preaching when he went down. Just kidding. Just kidding. I bet my son is scared to death to get baptized. All right, moving on. But notice the baptism, having been buried with him by baptism. Stop there. What is baptism? Baptism is the idea of being identified with somebody. Short history lesson. In the first century, 
If you could make purple cloth, it sold for more. And so everybody was going for purple cloth. But the problem is, is that whenever cloth came to them, it wasn't always purple. And so they had a vat, and they were able to get some dyes of a purple shade, of a violet shade. And they were able to go in and dip their garments in there in such a way as to where they pulled them out. They were no longer the previous color of which they were. They had been brought into nothing but purpleness. That's not a word, but go with it. In doing so, they are now completely identified as something different and have actually increased in value because of what they're now identified with, which is royalty. This is the reason why some of you wore purple today, and maybe you don't know it. Purple's just an Easter color. Purple is the color of royalty. It's the reason why we have it, because only he is a king. So when we talk about the idea of being spirit-baptized, at the moment that you respond in faith to Jesus Christ, the Spirit takes you and goes, and you're now identified with Jesus. You didn't have to fill anything. You didn't need a liver quiver or any kind of tickle like that, okay? It's something that he automatically and instantaneously does. And now you're identified with Christ. So that means every time that we see the idea of in him, you can say, I'm in there. That's part and parcel of me. That's true for me as well. Notice it says that you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him, resurrection for the believer in Christ through what? Faith. Let me give you a definition of faith. Faith is the confident conviction that something is true. It's not just saying, I think George Washington crossed the Delaware. It is you having a conviction that it for sure happened. Now understand this. None of us were there when Christ died, and none of us were there was when he raised. But that doesn't change the fact that we have the intelligence to put all of the facts together, pay attention to the historical record, and come to our own conviction because the Holy Spirit supernaturally works on our hearts to bring us to a point of believing. We can either accept that and believe, or we can reject that and understand that hell is an eternal destiny for us at that point. Make no bones about that. That is the truth of the gospel. Why is that? Because when the Holy Spirit comes into your life at the moment of faith, you now have God's life in you. If you don't have God's life, you can't be in God's abode. Only a righteousness like his own is acceptable to him because he's perfect. You and I can't supply that. Only Jesus did that for us. Now it says here that he raised him up through faith in the working of God. It's all God's work who raised him from the dead. You know what that means? The exact same power that God exercised in bringing Christ out of the grave 2,000 years ago is the exact same power that he exercises every time somebody hears the gospel and believes in Christ. Because everything that happens to you is nothing that you do. It's everything that God does to you. And trust me, he will do a lot to you. We move on here, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions. Now stop. Some of you here today don't know Christ. You're not a believer. You don't want anything to do with church. You're just thankful that we didn't have pews and we actually have comfy chairs here, okay? I get it. But it's important that you leave here knowledgeable. Number one, there's a God who loves you more than anything else in the world. 
Number two, he loves you so much that he recognized that you couldn't solve your problem, and so he brought forward the solution in his son to solve your problem for you. His name is Jesus. Number three, if you believe in him, not behave in him. It's not about how you act. It's not about what kind of commitment you're going to make from this moment forward. You could have perfect church attendance from this point out. That will not save you. Whoever believes in him will not perish. What is perish? The lake of fire. Spend an eternity separated from God. That won't happen to you. You will have eternal life. The question is, is do you believe in Jesus? Now notice here, he wants to bring these believers' minds back to who they were before Christ came into their life. When you were dead in your transgressions, when you were separated from God because you have offended him with a multitude of wrongdoing. Look what he says here. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, the sin nature still hung on you like a coat. He made you what? Wow, that was the most dead alive I've ever heard in my life. Let's try this one more time. He made you what? Alive. Alive. See, here's the secret about Jesus. You ever seen adrenaline junkies? We're 40,000 feet in the air. I'm going to jump out of this plane and I might take a parachute. Those guys, right? There's a piece of gold at the bottom of this den of snakes. I'm going to be rich. And they're going to go after it. Let me tell you a short story. This isn't extensive, okay? Some of us on our staff this week decided we were going to do something incredibly daring. So we went and bought a little canister of Maxwell House. And we went and bought a little canister of Folgers. And we said, on Monday, we're going to try Maxwell House. On Tuesday, we're going to try Folgers. And we're going to keep a written record of what we think. Now, if you know me, I drink my coffee black, okay? I need all the the hair on my chest I could possibly get. So that's what I do, all right? I can't believe he said that. Chill out. You're at church. It's okay. And so we brewed this Maxwell house. I don't even have words. Okay? Because I had to put in two creams and one sugar in a small cup just to get it down. And I thought, what horse swill is this that people have got going on? Now, I know some of you are like, I love Maxwell House. Understand this. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay? So myself and Tabitha and Amy are all sitting around this island in here. We're all taking a drink and we're looking at each other like somebody just stabbed us. Having absolute revulsion going on. And so we kept a score. I gave it a four. And I thought, surely, and if it wouldn't have the cream and sugar, it would have been a one. The fact that it was just dark and warm, that was it. The next day is Folger's Day. I just wrote, no. <laughs> I didn't even score it. Even with two creams and a sugar, it was wrong. 
So yes, we have a staff full of adrenaline junkies here. Because that was daring and that was out there. Before you leave, try the coffee. We have this coffee because no one should ever be drinking that coffee, okay? Understand this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. Which tells you that life, for real, is only possible in Christ. And God has to do the work. You will never do enough to feel alive or to be alive. You guys realize that evil can evil broke every bone in his body? Why? Number one, he had a pride issue. Number two, he was doing nothing with his life but trying to feel alive. You don't need to be at high speed and high altitudes to feel alive. You need to know Jesus Christ. Only in him is life everlasting. It's a life that starts now and doesn't quit even though you do. Do you have that life? Notice it says here as well, he made you alive together with him. Just as Jesus is alive, so you are alive if you are in Christ. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Pause. Everybody see the word all? Church people, what's the word all mean? Yeah! And you know why that's important? Let's do an experiment. I'm not going to throw anything. It's okay. Close your eyes. Do it for me, please. Work with me on this. Some of you already got your eyes closed because you're asleep. It's okay. Work with me on this. Think about that one sin that comes to your mind that you always say, yeah, Jesus forgives sins, but not that one. What is it? Don't say it out loud. But just think about it. Put it, in, put it in your mind for just a second. Let it settle in in the middle of your heart. We've all got something. We've all got a skeleton in the closet. We've all got a habit we can't break. We've all got an addiction that's strangling us. We've all got a hurt and a wound that keeps getting opened. And either it's something that's been done to us or something that we've done to other people, it's a burden. It weighs heavy. It nags. Sometimes it hides out. Sometimes it pops back up. Now let me ask you a question. What is it about that sin that the death of the perfect Son of God could not wipe away? Was it because it was so bad? Was it because it was so wrong? Because when I read here, it says all. All. And it may be a small word, but filed underneath it is everything that you think that Jesus cannot handle. Jesus paid it all. I'm not even going to say all to you or to Him you owe. I'm just going to tell you that however you think that it's outside of the sphere of His blood, it's not. Do not buy this lie, this philosophy, this empty deceit in the ways of people or demons that tells you, well, yeah, Jesus took care of it, except that one. 
because that's the one that I'm going to wrap around your wrists. And that's the one that I'm going to gag your mouth. And that's the one that I'm going to blind your eyes. And that's the one that I'm going to try to darken your heart. Because I know one thing. It was so bad, Jesus can't handle it. Understand that that is a lie directly from hell. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the triumphant Savior of glory. And we sit here and we carry these things that kill us inside. And Jesus has already wiped it away. Notice the verse says, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. See the word forgiven? It's actually a form of the Greek word we use for grace. In other words, of all the things I think of I deserve in my life, God decided that He was going to do the opposite of what my opinion was. He decided He was going to bless me and He was going to set me free and He was going to wash all this away and He was going to take the very thing that plagues me and weighs me down in my sin problem and He was going to begin to cut it away from me because in Him that's not an issue anymore. I am covered by His blood. I have been wiped clean all transgressions are forgiven so notice what he says here verse 14 having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us let me give you this fun little word legalism or let me give you the common word for legalism religion religion say what you want but no one spoke more clearly and profoundly on religion than george carlin did because he grew up catholic in New York, and he understood there was a problem. No matter what you do, God's not ever satisfied, and I keep having to do it. That is not the Bible. That is not the gospel. And that is not Jesus Christ. Constantly, you will hear, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to go here, and you need to say this, and you need to pray this way. And you better be facing this way when you pray. That is Satan creating cats with yarn in order to keep us obstructed from seeing grace. And grace says, I've already done it all for you on the cross. Sit down and believe it. Stop working. Stop doing. And start receiving. So if you've come in with some sort of baggage of, well, I'm not good enough. I had somebody tell me, well, I'm not good enough to come to church. I said, I don't know one person in our church that is. If it's my choice, I'd kick them all out. And I'd be the first one to go. Let's be honest. No one is good enough to be before the throne of grace. But that's why it's a throne of grace. Because it invites everyone who shouldn't be there, there and says, this is home. My son made it so. So any requirements or stipulations against you, guess what? Jesus dealt with that too. And he dealt with it decisively. Notice it was hostile against us. We found ourselves constantly bucking up against it. Let's be honest. We can't be good enough. We didn't need more rules on top of us to tell us that. We already know it before we ever came with that. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Can you imagine the sound? imagine what it was for Jesus to lay there on the ground while they drove those nails through his hands do we even begin to understand the fullness of what was going on there 
Well, it was some guy that was a religious zealot, and he was causing quite a stir, and these people were getting all freaked out about it. And you know what happens when people get out of control. you got to persecute them and arrest them and shut them down. And you know what? We couldn't do anything more with him, so we had to kill him. That sounds like something our world would say now. What was really going on there? Because you can't do it, I am doing it for you. Sometimes we think about, I should have been the one that died on that cross. You know what? Even if I did, I wouldn't have got the job done. I only have one life. I can only die for one sin. And I promise you, I got a couple more besides just one. What does Jesus do? Never sins. Still dies. But dies perfectly. Why? So that you wouldn't have to mess with sin ever again. You're saying I won't sin? No, I'm saying that when you do sin, it's already paid for. I'm saying any debt that you may run up, either knowingly or unknowingly, has already been completely forgiven. Why can't Visa be like that? Because Visa doesn't know Jesus, that's why. That's another sermon. Moving on. Let's finish this. So he dies in our place. He pays our price. And he dies perfectly, not just for you, not just for me, but for the sins of the whole world. Now watch this. Here's what's great. Verse 15. And he, that's God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities. I love it. The word disarmed there is like you grabbed a fool by their hair and you ripped their shirt right off of them. Can you imagine a bunch of naked demons running around somewhere? That's just a pleasing picture in my sight, man. I'm a little weird. That's okay. But that's exactly what God did. You have no power. You have nothing to hide behind anymore. I'm going to show you for what you are. Look what it says. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, remember that back from verse uh, 10, demonic forces and eight, elementary principles, principalities, he, God, made a public display of them, fully exposed. You thought the ways of this world were profound and amazing. Guess what? They all ended head first into a brick wall. Why? Because demons orchestrated to get us there. Don't care about us. Don't care about you. Don't care about your life. Don't care about your family. They don't care. And they will do whatever they can to manipulate us. Trying to convince us that we can become gods. Try to convince us that we can become super. Guess what? We are most of all helpless. That's the first and foremost admission of the human race. And this is why Jesus had to step in. These unseen powers, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through Jesus. How did he triumph over them? Imagine what Satan might have been thinking when Jesus died on the cross. Probably victory. In fact, he probably sat back for a second and said, I didn't think we were going to get this done, but it got done. I didn't think this was possible. Satan knew who Jesus was. Everybody remember the whole temptation thing? If you truly are the Son of God, do this. He knew. He knew. I didn't think we were going to get him dead. And he's dead. Now, I would have loved to have the hidden camera on him. 
when this rock started to roll out of the way. And it wasn't the stench of dead people coming out. It was the Son of God showing Himself for the first time because God had raised Him. You talk about power. You talk about profound ability. You talk about comfort. Have you ever thought that all of the things that almost choke us out in life all pale in comparison to the idea of someone dying and being raised from the grave. And all of these things file under the authority that comes with that. We struggle. We hurt. Sometimes we have pain that is unimaginable. We cry out to one another for some sort of solution and there's nothing more helpless than looking at a situation going, I don't even have an answer here. I don't even begin to know what to do here. Nobody wrote a manual for this. Because situations like that bring us face to face with our own mortality pretty quickly. But what the frightening part is, is if there's nothing on the other side of that of hope, we now find ourselves in an incredibly pitiful condition. This is the reason why Jesus walked out of this tomb. This is the reason why He said sin will not come out on top. And death will not come out on top. And hell will not come out on top. And philosophy and vain conceit will not come out on top. And the ways that people think will not win. And the ways that demons want to try to orchestrate a victory will not suffice. Notice that he didn't have to come in and draw up all these tanks and battle plans in order to come up with an amazing, amazing strategy to deal with it. He simply had to raise from the dead. That's it. And that's everything. It's everything. So now if you're not familiar with this, let me bring you up to speed. We don't do altar calls here. And there's a reason for that. If you were to walk an aisle and come up here and talk to me, you've already believed in Jesus. I'm just up here to pray with you and pat you on the back and say I'm so thankful that you're no longer going to hell. You now have a certain eternal wrapped up destiny in heaven that can never be lost. That's fantastic. But this is something that's personal between you and God. Many of you have already believed in Christ. Some of you have not. I will say this, everybody needs to. Because there is no greater hope, there is no other solution, there is no other answer. And if you have one, then that's somebody who needs to walk an aisle after we're done because I want to hear that explanation. And I want to have that conversation. Not to be mean, not to be crass or anything like that. But Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God who paid in totality all of the sin that we've ever accumulated so that God could judicially pronounce us as forgiven. And the work is done. When Jesus died on the cross, He said it is finished. 
It's over. It's done. So if there's an answer greater than that, we need to have a conversation about that. If you're someone who right now can tell, because you hear it, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And this is why we distract ourselves with Facebook so we don't have to listen to Him. Try to crowd out when He's trying to talk to us. But right now, if this is you, then excellent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's how easy it is. That's how simple it is. Are you convinced that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins and risen from the grave? Because if you have, it's done. It's over. The, the fight is done. The war has been won. If that's you, come talk to me as well. I would love to talk with you. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father God, thank You that You alone provide hope. There's hope nowhere else. There's no hope in this life. And that sounds very, very discouraging. But the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we can lay it down and get on to the life to come. Thank You God that You haven't left us alone and thank You Lord that You've never demanded that we come up with our own solution. But in Your mercy, You've seen how pitiful we are. And You have set forward Your Son to die a horrendous death. To suffer great persecution. To be executed publicly. For a debt that He didn't owe. And a price we could never pay. And thank You, God, that You have come to meet us where we are. We're told in the Word of God that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. At this moment, if we're someone who does not know Christ, one of those three areas is pressing on our heart right now. And this is the day of salvation. To stop fighting and to start believing. So Lord, thank You that You've provided a way. You weren't obligated to do anything, but You provided a way. Thank You that in Your love for people, You didn't leave us to ourselves, but You got actively and personally involved and You see it through to the end. Father, thank You that You have graced us with forgiveness of sins in the person of Jesus. We pray all this in His awesome name. Amen.